Shalom and welcome to TanakhStudy.com. This is Menachem Liptag from Alon Shvut. I would like to thank Dr. Ziegler for allowing me the opportunity to study with you the first two aliyot of Parashat B'Shalach and to share with you some of my understandings. Before we begin our study of the parasha, I would like to note that we find ourselves at a transition point in Sefer Shemot. The first major topic of the book was the Exodus, or the story of the Jews leaving Egypt. And now we begin the story of the journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai. That journey is not only a physical one, crossing the desert to arrive at Mount Sinai, but also a spiritual one to prepare them for their encounter with God and to become His people. These two sections of Sefer Shemot also reflect the two primary missions or jobs that Moshe Rabbeinu received at the burning bush. His first job was a mission to Pharaoh, where God commanded him to go to Pharaoh and convince him to send the people out to serve their God into the desert. His second mission was to go to the children of Israel, to Am Yisrael, and prepare them for the redemption. Relatively speaking, the first job was easier because God told him he only has to follow orders. God will take care of everything, and Moshe only has to follow what God tells him to do. His second job, to educate the Jewish people to be ready to serve their God, is much more difficult, as we will see, that becomes Moshe Rabbeinu's job till the end of Chumash. This distinction also reflects the double message of the entire Exodus narrative. There's a universal message of freedom, that no nation has the right to enslave another people, and hence Egypt must be punished for their enslavement of the Jewish people, and Am Yisrael must be redeemed. But there's also a more particular message, and that relates to the underlying theme of Chumash, where God is choosing a nation that will serve Him forever. Back in Sefer Breshit, God planted the seeds of that nation by choosing our forefathers and charging them with their mission. And now that that nation has grown and become free, it's now time to prepare them for their encounter with God in Mount Sinai. However, the experience of leaving Egypt was not enough to prepare them to become God's people. First, it was necessary to break their slave mentality and their dependence on their Egyptian masters, and then to make them ready and eager to enter a covenant with God. This explains why what should have been a three-day journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai will take almost seven weeks. It will also explain all the events that we are going to encounter in Parshat B'Shalach. The first two aliyot will focus on how God tricks Pharaoh to attack. This leads to the demise of the Egyptian army, and Am will witness this miraculous defeat of that army and will be amazed. The next two aliyot will focus on the song of praise that Am sings as they witness this victory. And the journey to Marah where God will bring them to a place where the water is bitter. And as they're dying of thirst, God will perform a miracle that turns the bitter water into sweet water. The fifth and sixth aliyot will describe the events that happened in Midbar Sin, where there's no food to eat, and God brings a special food from heaven called the manna. That would teach them dependence on God and how to follow His laws, and it introduces them to the concept of Shabbat. And finally, the seventh aliyah describes the events that will take place in Rifidim, where again, there's a lack of water. God performs a miracle by bringing water from the rock that leads later to this war with Amalek. And after all these events, Parshat B'Shalach ends as Am Yisrael arrives at Mount Sinai. And just to show you this idea, we're going to see at Mount Sinai, right before we receive the Torah, God is going to propose a covenant to the Jewish people. And the opening lines of that covenant in chapter 19, verse 4, God tells them, Atem ritem asher siti le Mitzrayim, you witnessed what I did to Egypt. I brought you here. I lifted you up here on the wings of eagles. And I brought you here to me, to Mount Sinai. And now are you willing to obey me and keep my covenant and be my special nation? And if so, you will be a mamlechet koanim, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
this was God's proposal. And in light of these opening words that lead to Am Yisrael accepting the covenant, we see how important it was to prepare them by the six or seven weeks of experiences that help make them ready. With this in mind, let's begin our study of Parshat B'Shalach. Chapter 13, verse 17, Perak Yud Gimel, Pasuk Yud Zayin, Vayi, B'Shalach paro et ha'am, v'do nacham Elohim derech eretz plishtim ki karovu, ki amar Elohim peninachem ha'am b'rotam melchama v'shavu mitzrayma. And it came to pass, when Paro sent the people out, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Plishtim, which implies the land along the coast of the Mediterranean, the direct route to the land of Israel, even though it was a closer way to go, because God said if the people would encounter war against the Canaanites so soon after their exodus from Egypt, they would become scared, they wouldn't be ready for this encounter, and they would retreat and go back to Egypt. Rabbi Al-Banun, in one of his articles, suggests that their worry was they would go back to Egypt and ask for help against their enemies, and again, God did not want them to be dependent on their Egyptian masters. Instead, verse 18, God leads the people instead towards the desert. Instead of going northeast from Egypt towards Canaan, we go southeast towards the desert. And we leave Israel armed. There is a famous Midrash on the word Hamushim, quoted by Rashi, that Hamushim refers to one-fifth implying that only one-fifth of the Jewish people left Egypt, while four-fifths died during the plague of Choshech, during the plague of darkness. And that was because those four-fifths did not take the Korban Pesach on the 10th of the month. And anyone who did not take the Korban Pesach and did not get rid of their idol worship and did not change their Egyptian ways was not worthy of redemption. Hence, Hamushim implies that only one-fifth of the people left Egypt. Now, Ebenezer vehemently disagrees with this interpretation, proving from the book of Yeshua that the word chamushim means armed, because Am Yisrael crossed the Jordan River armed, ready for battle. Ebenezer argues it doesn't make any sense we would celebrate the Exodus if during the time of the Exodus, four-fifths of our people were killed. That would not be a time to celebrate. It would be almost like Tishabab. I think that the Ebenezer's approach is definitely the simple shot of the psukim, the simple meaning. However, Rashi's interpretation reflects the deeper theme going on, as we explained in our introduction, that there's also a theme of these events are necessary to prepare us for Har Sinai. Hence, anyone not ready for Har Sinai, not willing to get rid of their Egyptian ways, was not worthy of leaving Egypt. So I don't think this Midrash is historical, but rather it's thematic, highlighting the need of Am Yisrael not only to leave Egypt, but to be ready and prepared to serve God at Har Sinai. Let's continue now with Pasuk Yotet, verse 19. Moshe took the bones of Yosef with him. Before Yosef died, he had made the children of Israel and his brethren swear to him, When God will remember you and take you out of Egypt, I'm making you swear that at that time you will take my bones out with me. Note that technically speaking, this story should have been recorded back in chapter 12 in the story of the Exodus. We already left Egypt. Why do we mention that Moshe had taken the bones of Yosef with him at that time? It could be that the bones of Yosef reflect this theme of not only taking the Jews out of Egypt, but taking Egypt out of the Jews. If our connection to Egypt, which God is trying to break, is represented by Yosef's position in Egypt as once a hero and a leader of the Egyptian people, by taking the bones of Yosef with us, we are showing or symbolizing our detachment from Egypt, and it could be, as we begin our journey to Mount Sinai and prepare for our connection to God, it could be that's why we mentioned this at this point in the story and not earlier. Also, I would like to note that 
the phrase what Yosef had told his brethren before he dies that God will remember you the word pokod has really a different meaning the Hebrew word to remember would be liskor as God says many times I'll remember my covenant instead the word pokod in Hebrew means to charge for example in the beginning of the book of Ezra we are told that the king Koresh said all the lands were given to me by God he commanded me, the word Bakod, he commanded me to build a house for God in Yerushalayim. In chapter 27 in Sefer Bamidbar, after Moshe Rabbeinu was told to climb up to Har Nevo and to die, Moshe asked God to appoint a leader. And he turns to God and says, God should appoint a leader on the nation to lead them, to lead them in battle and lead them on their journey. So many times, especially in Sefer Bamidbar, the word Pakod does not only mean just to count or to remember, but also means to give a charge, to give a mission. In this sense, what Yosef is telling his brethren is one time God will not just remember you were in Egypt, but God is going to remember in Egypt to give you a charge, to give you a mission, to become his people. This understanding might also provide us with an alternate interpretation of the famous pasuk that we read on Rosh Hashanah from Parshat Vayera, Ba'ashem Pakaret Sarah, that God remembered Sarah to give her a child before the birth of Yitzchak. It could be that God's promise of a child is not only a promise to give you a child, but rather a commandment to raise the child. It becomes the job of Sarah not only to give birth to a child, but rather to raise the child as one of the forefathers of the Jewish people. We are now in Pasachaf in verse 20. Sukkot, Am Yisrael traveled from the city of Sukkot. Remember from chapter 12, we left Ramses in Egypt and our first encampment point was Sukkot. And now we continue the journey from Sukkot to Etam, which is now at the edge of the desert. Why is Chumash telling us these different locations of the journey? This goes back to an earlier theme in Sefer Shemot, where Moshe demanded from Pharaoh that we go a three-day distance into the desert. Don't be mistaken, Moshe does not ask for three days to journey, but rather a three-day distance. Throughout Chumash, distances are measured in days' time. For example, when Laban separates his sheep from those of Yaakov, there is a distance of three days between their sheep. So here too, when God says, we need to go a three-day distance into the desert, that's not a measurement of time, but rather a measurement of distance. These three days into the desert make a lot of sense now, because we leave from Stace to Sukkot, which is distance of day one. And now from Sukkot, we go to Etam, at the edge of the desert, which is the distance of day two. This implies that distance of day three should be the next step, and therefore, we should go from Etam into the desert, traveling to Mount Sinai to serve our God. As we will see very soon, this information will be critical to understand what happens in chapter 14. Let's continue in Pasuk Chafalaf, verse 21. God would lead them, would walk in front of them, as Ebenezer points out, it's not God himself, but rather a messenger of God, a Malach Hashem, which implies that it is not that God is in the cloud, but rather God sent the cloud, who created that cloud, and the fire that will lead them through the desert day and night. So again, God would lead them or walk with them day and night by the way of a pillar of a cloud to lead them during the day, and a pillar of fire to lead them at night. Pasach Abed, verse 22, Lo yamish amud ha'anan yamam v'amud ha'esh laila am. This cloud of smoke and fire would stay with the people day and night and never leave them until they arrive at Mount Sinai. Chapter 14, verse 1. By the Adonai Moshe Lemor, 
God speaks to Moshe saying, Daber a Bnei Yisrael v'yashuvu. Speak to Bnei Yisrael and tell them to return. Vayachanu lifnei fi achirot ben migdo uben hayam lifnei baot sefon nichcho tachanu al hayam. God is going to give Moshe very explicit coordinates of where to move and set up his camp. Instead of going to the desert, he says, set up camp in front of a place called Piachirot, between Migdol and the sea, opposite Baltzaphon, set up camp by the sea. Now, it could be that these are simply very explicit coordinates to know where to set up camp, but all the names seem to also carry a Midrashic meaning. Piachirot might be some Egyptian name, but it definitely sounds like Chirut, the Hebrew word for freedom. Migdol is a name for a, a tower. In fact, in Haftarah for Pasha Era, we saw that the border of Egypt was from a city called Migdol Senavei all the way down to Kush. So this would be the northeastern border of Egypt, as it is in the story. And in front of Baal must be the name of an Egyptian god. We're going to show that God is going to defeat the Egyptian enemy, even though their god is right in front of them. Pasuk Yimel, Before we continue this Pasuk, we have to clarify that Paro is not saying a word in this Pasuk. Rather, God is still talking to Moshe Rabbeinu, and explaining to him what Paro will say, or in other words, God is explaining to Moshe Rabbeinu what his strategy is going to be, and how this maneuver will cause Pharaoh to change his mind and chase them. So that Paro will say about the Israel that they are unsettled or confused in the land, and they're closed in by the desert. We're going to return to this Pasuk later on when we discuss why Paro changes his mind and decides to attack. This will cause Pharaoh to strengthen his heart and decide to chase after them. And through this, I will glorify myself in front of Pharaoh and his entire army. Then all of Egypt will know that I am God. And this is what the Jewish people did. They turned around. They did not go to the desert. They went back towards Egypt and traveled to the place that God had pointed out to them. Now, the word ikavda, as most parshanim, as most commentators point out, means I will glorify myself from the word kavod. But also remember throughout all the makot, especially in the beginning, when God makes Paro's heart heavy, so the word play here is very obvious that on the one hand, God causes Pharaoh to harden his heart and make his heart heavy. But at the same time, this will bring kavod, this will bring glory to our God. Now we continue in verse 5 in Pasuk am. It was told to the king of Egypt that the people ran away. When Pharaoh heard that the people ran away, the heart or the opinion of Pharaoh, that is his advisors, suddenly changed about the people. And they said, what have we done? We sent Am Yisrael away from slavery. Notice, he didn't say that we sent them out of Egypt. He did not send them to Israel free but rather he realizes that they are back in Egypt and free. To understand what happens, we have to go back to another question, which bothers many of the commentators. Why is it that God commands Moshe Rabbeinu to lie or sort of make a white lie to Pharaoh and instead of asking for freedom, why does he ask for only a three-day journey to serve their God? Rashbam offers his famous explanation that it was okay to lie to Pharaoh. In fact, Moshe Rabbeinu's entire mission to Pharaoh was simply a hoax with the assumption that once Pharaoh allows them to go serve the God in the desert, they won't come back. And that's the trick to get them out of Egypt, because to ask for freedom, Pharaoh would never agree. But to ask to go serve their God a three-day distance for religious freedom, maybe Pharaoh would agree to that. 
Ebenezer goes in a very similar direction and also notes in the beginning of chapter 11, one of the amazing things about the Jewish people that everyone kept a secret. Because if the entire plan was simply a hoax, that they were only going for a three-day distance to serve their God in the desert, and no one in Egypt knew that they weren't going to come back, how could it be that Pharaoh and his intelligence didn't find out? So Ebenezer claims that every Jewish person, they were all tzaddikim, they're all righteous, and no one told the secret, and no one in Egypt realized what was really happening. I would like to suggest a slightly different approach, which is based on what I call political biblical realism. And that is, Moshe cannot tell Pharaoh the truth because the truth was not realistic. It is not realistic to take two million people from Egypt and travel with them through the desert. It is impossible for that many people to survive a desert journey. And let's say to survive the desert journey, there's no way that the nations of Canaan would allow them to enter. They would go to war against them. And there's no way they could stand a war against the seven nations of Canaan. And had Moshe told Pharaoh the truth that we're going to Canaan, he would not have believed him. Remember, from the very beginning of the story of the Exodus in chapter 1, what was Egypt's fear? They were afraid, should the population of Israel grow greater and greater, one day the people of Israel would join with an outside enemy and take over Egypt. Every Egyptian leader was always worried about a takeover. That's why there were over 30 dynasties in Egypt. Egypt has tremendous resources, is an economic giant, and everyone with power wants to take over the country. And either nations from the outside would come and take over, or groups of people from the inside would come and take over. The reason, according to Sefer Shmot, that Pharaoh begins the enslavement is in the name of national security to prevent the Jewish people from becoming too powerful and thus thwart the possibility of a takeover from the inside or joining with an enemy from the outside and taking over. And therefore, no one has to keep a secret. Instead, whenever Moshe goes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's only fear is that they would go into the desert and not come back into their slavery, but rather they would either declare their own freedom and either join an enemy to take over Egypt, or at least go back to Egypt somewhere else, not to Goshen, not to their places of slavery, but rather set up their own people within Egypt. There's something else we have to consider. How is God going to get two million people out of Egypt overnight with great wealth, everyone accounted for? If Pharaoh only granted Amiso freedom to leave Egypt that they would like to go to Israel, I don't think the entire nation would have left. I think only a very small group of people would have left. It's very hard to leave the place that you've grown up your whole life. Just look at Jewish history. When Jews have an opportunity to leave wherever they're living and go to Israel, if they're not thrown out of that country, only a very small amount actually leave. What needs to happen in the story of the Exodus, we don't need Pharaoh to get permission for the Jews to leave. We need Pharaoh and the entire Egyptian people to expel us from Egypt. The word that Chumash will use is girush. Remember the last line of Parshat Shemot, chapter 6, verse 1, when Moshe is bewildered, what's going on? He does not understand God's plan because things get worse before they get better. God responded, You'll see what I'll do to Pharaoh. Not only is he going to send you out, he's going to expel you. And we need to convince not just Pharaoh, but the entire Egyptian people that it's in their national interest that Am Yisrael go to the desert a three-day distance and serve their God. How are we going to accomplish this? Little by little and slowly, we have to convince not just Pharaoh, but the entire Egyptian people, that the reason for these consecutive plagues is because Am Yisrael needs to serve their God in the desert. And therefore, in Moshe Rabbeinu's very first encounter with Pharaoh, he tells him that God of the Hebrews, Elohim Avrim, Dikrayelenu, has happened upon us, and says, we must go a three-day distance into the desert, 
If not, that's in chapter 5, verse 3. If we don't serve our God, we're going to be smitten by pestilence and sword. And as we'll see, it's talking about what will happen to Egypt, not what will happen to Israel. Of course, Pharaoh doesn't buy this. He thinks it's just a ploy. And therefore, before every single plague, Moshe gives a warning and says, if you do not let us go serve our God, he says, I'm demanding Pharaoh, shalach not let my people go, but send my people out. We need Pharaoh to command the Exodus. We have to go out of Egypt and serve our God. Pharaoh, after three or four plagues, finally gives in and says, go serve your God, but not in the desert, serve him in the land. And Moshe says, no way, we have to go a three-day distance into the desert. And then after seven plagues, at the very beginning of Parshat Bo, Pharaoh and all of his advisors are convinced. In chapter 10, verse 7, how long will this nation be a stumbling block for Egypt? Send these people out and let them serve their God. If not, Egypt's going to be finished. And sure enough, Pharaoh agrees. And he tells Moshe Rabbeinu, go serve your God, but he wants to know who's going. Moshe says, everyone, Pharaoh only agrees to the men. Let the men go and serve God, but not the women and children. Again, what is Pharaoh worried about? Not that they're not going to come back and go to Israel, but rather they're going to come back and be independent, and they're going to leave slavery and possibly take over Egypt. Finally, after nine plagues, Pharaoh gives in and says, you know what, even let the women and children go, just leave your cattle behind. And again, in the end of chapter 10, Moshe is insistent, no, we have to go with our women, our children, all of our cattle, because we don't know what God will ask us to serve him with, and it has to be our cattle. Pharaoh is so angry. He tells Moshe Rabbeinu, don't come back. And Moshe responds, you're right, I'm not going to come back. And tonight at midnight, it's going to be over. One more plague's coming, and this time, you're going to come to me. Sure enough, that night, it's the night of the Makat Bacharot, the 10th plague, where all the firstborn of Egypt are killed. And after that plague, Paro is totally convinced and demands that Moshe and the entire people leave Egypt to serve their God. Note that there's another event that helps convince the Egyptian people. How do we know the Jewish sacrifice can stop a plague? Well, God has a very intricate plan. He commands Am Yisrael to take a lamb on the 10th of the month, four days before the plague of the firstborn, and to keep it for three days, which most likely are the three days of Choshech, three days of darkness. And then on the 14th of the month, the day before the plague of the firstborn. Every Jewish household takes a lamb and offers it to God, puts the blood on their doorpost. Everyone in Egypt sees what's going on. And it just so happens that night, any Jewish home that brought a sacrifice was saved from the plague. And every Egyptian home was afflicted by the plague. What conclusion did the Egyptian people reach? Not only that the God of the Hebrews is behind the plague, but more so Jewish sacrifice works. Therefore, after the plague of the firstborn, that evening, everyone in Egypt is totally convinced that the reason for the plagues is this God, and that Jewish sacrifice can solve the problem. Therefore, they demand that Am Yisrael go serve their God. And it's not that we want to leave, we are rushed out by the Egyptians. Go back to chapter 12, in verse 31, where Paro gets up in the middle of the night and tells Moshe, Hashem kedaberchem, Go serve your God just like you said. And bless me as well. And then in verse 33, The Egyptian people are forcing the Jews to leave to the point that we read in verse 39 in chapter 12 that we were in such a rush leaving Egypt. We had to take the dough with us. We didn't have time to break our bread, not because we were in a rush, but rather because the Egyptians were rushing us out. And therefore, we had to bake our bread in Sukkot. Why? 
because we were expelled from Egypt. While we were being expelled, God's final consideration in the plan works because Egypt is so interested that we leave and go serve our God, he tells Amisro to borrow as much as possible from the Egyptian people. In this frame of mind, when they're so worried about their lives and they're so convinced that Jewish sacrifice will work, anything Amisro asks for, it could be gold and silver, so we look nice, nice clothing we can borrow. We'll see, uh, as we mentioned before, the men borrow arms. Egypt is in such a position and so eager that we go serve our God, they will lend us anything we ask for, of course, assuming we're coming back. And through this plan, God is able to achieve his promise to Abraham Avinu to leave Egypt with great wealth on the one hand. But the most important point is that the entire Jewish people leave. Everyone is accounted for because everyone was home that evening eating the Korban Pesach. No one was allowed uh, to leave their homes all night long. As we saw in chapter 12, that was God's commandment for Moshe to tell the people no one can leave their home that entire night. Everyone must be accounted for. Everyone has to be included in the Korban Pesach. So if you take all these points into consideration, God's master plan is rather amazing. The main goal is to get the Jews out of Egypt. Who's going to get the job done? God is going to convince the Egyptian people it's in their interest to expel us from Egypt to go serve our God. And the reason we leave Egypt is not because we were given permission to leave, but rather we were expelled from Egypt in order to serve our God. Keep that in mind. And now we go back to the story that we're studying. Remember this three-day journey. We went from Ramses to Sukkot, and then from Sukkot to Etam at the edge of the desert. And now everyone is expecting from Etam that Am Yisrael is going to go the last day distance into the desert to serve their God. Instead, God changes his plan to everyone's surprise and tells him to go back towards Egypt and gives him very specific coordinates where to set up camp. This journey is no secret to Egyptian intelligence. Everyone is following them. And when they see we don't go into the desert and go back to Egypt, there's one obvious conclusion they reach, that they have no interest in going to the desert to serve their God. It was all just a ploy in the very beginning. They're not going back to Ramses. They're not going back in the opposite direction where they came from, back to their slavery and to their homes, but rather they're traveling back into Egypt, but towards southern Egypt. And they're setting up camp along the sea, most likely ready to declare independence. Now they're armed. They have all their women and children, all their cattle, and there's no reason for them to come back to slavery. Now it becomes a question of Egyptian security. Therefore, Paro must make the choice, do I put down this rebellion as soon as possible? But because we're encamped by the sea and we're unsettled, we didn't set up our camp yet, the sooner Paro attacks, the better. So all these considerations are going to cause Pharaoh to strengthen his heart and change his mind now and attack, thinking that he's been duped by Moshe and the people. That will lead to the story, which we will study tomorrow, what happens at the Red Sea and how not only is this going to bring the demise and final punishment of Pharaoh and his army, but also will amaze the Jewish people and lead them to the recognition that God is stronger than Egypt. It will help cut their ties with Egypt and make them more dedicated to God. With this in mind, let's read now verse 6, Pasuk Vav. Therefore Pharaoh takes his chariot and his entire nation. He takes 600 of his best chariots. And behind them, the entire Egyptian army and all their chariots. The Shalishim al officers on his entire army. And by doing so, by Chazek Adonai Le Paro, God strengthens the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, Melech Mitzrayim, by Yerdov Achre Bnei Israel, and he chases after Israel. Uvnei Israel Yotzim Biad Am Israel is leaving at the same time with an outstretched hand, and we're ready for a big battle that will take place in our study of Sheni, the second Aliyah, in our Shir tomorrow.